And I don't think either one of us realized that the first time that an NDP candidate would win that Halifax federal riding would be, I think it was 17 years later. And it was, in fact, Alexa McDonough who won it. Welcome to the Trailblazers and Troublemakers podcast. I'm your host, Scott Costin. My guest today is Stephen Kimber, an award-winning writer, editor, and broadcaster. His latest book, published by Goose Lane Editions, is Alexa, Changing the Face of Canadian Politics. Welcome to the podcast, Stephen. Thank you very much, Scott. So you've had a very lengthy and successful career as both a journalist and an author, I'm wondering what, what's the key to your longevity in the turbulent media and publishing industries? Uh, I think probably, to, to be totally fair, the, the best thing I did way back when was to get a job at the university, which allowed me to do these things on the side. The universities are very accommodating to the kind of work that I do uh, and have been very you know, helpful and, and willing to let me uh, say things that uh, might not make people uh, happy. And, and, and they've certainly uh, gotten letters from people suggesting that I should be fired from time to time. But, uh, you know, as a rule, uh, I, I've been able to, to, to work around. And I realize that that is a luxury because in this country, it's very hard for uh, somebody to be a freelance journalist and survive uh, for many years. I did uh, in my earlier years, I spent about probably five or six years as a full-time uh, freelance, mag mostly magazine writer. Uh, and I enjoyed that very much. But, uh, you know, once you get into the academic world, it's a, it, it, it becomes more comfortable, to say the least. And one of your fortes, of course, is, is column writing. You were a columnist for the Halifax Daily News for a number of years before it folded. And nowadays, you're uh, a columnist for the online publication, the Halifax Examiner. Could you describe for people what you see as the columnist role and what are the key ingredients for a good column? Uh, I, I mean, I think the columnist role is to provoke. Uh, you know, I don't write things that I don't believe at all. Uh, but at the same time, I do try to, to write them in a way that will provoke a response. Uh, I think it's probably changed over the years. I mean, I started out uh, uh, at the Daily News, but even before that, I had a magazine. So I've, I've been doing column writing for probably about 30 odd years uh, on a regular basis. Um, and I think I was more provocative uh, as a younger uh, writer in terms of just wanting to stir things up. And, and at the old Daily News, we had some uh, good times because there were a bunch of us who were columnists. And uh, we often fought with one another, which is not something that you normally get in the pages of a newspaper. But the Daily News was very comfortable with that. And, you know, I, I, I remember... Uh, Harry Fleming, who was one of my counterparts at the Daily News, who was sort of a, a right-wing columnist, uh, I got a call one day from the editor of the paper saying, we're not, not going to run this, but I thought you should know that the headline over Harry's uh, column tomorrow will be fire the slithery toad, meaning me. <laughs> <laughs> so it was, it was a, a, a kind of a wild west, but it was fun. And, you know, I think... Uh, the, as I've grown older, I've sort of become, I think, more nuanced and a little, uh, there's a little more depth in, in, in the stuff that I'm writing. Um, it hasn't changed totally, but, but in that sense, uh, I, I think, you know, I am, I'm more of a mature writer now than I certainly was then. And maybe it's also just because your older people take you more seriously. Um, getting old gives you a certain amount of respect in this, uh, in this business as well. Uh, just maybe just because you are old, but you know, I, I guess you, you also asked what makes a, a good column. I think it's a combination of, uh, finding s an angle on a story that other people haven't, um, already thought of or written about and providing a perspective 
some people will certainly disagree with you uh, on that, but at least it, it allows for a conversation to take place. And, and I like that. I mean, I, I, I like it when uh, people disagree and, and uh, come back at me with certain things, especially if they, if they have, uh, you know, substance to them. That's part of what I think is a good, you know, public discourse is to have that kind of thing out there where, where, uh, it's just a little like Mao Zedong and, you know, uh, let a, let a hundred flowers bloom. I don't mean to be a, a Maoist here, but it, but that idea, uh, that the best result is from a diversity of opinion. And, you know, it's one of the, it, it is sort of to go to the side there a bit, a little bit of the, what's gone wrong in the last number of years is that we're not talking to each other. We're sort of talking past each other and there's sort of the right wing media and the left wing media and there's nobody sort of uh, reading or listening to the other side very much. And I guess that's one of the, the issues with social media. I mean, you, you go back 20 or 30 years, maybe not even that long. And if someone had an issue with a column you had written, they would write a letter to the editor. They might call into a newsroom to complain. Nowadays, it's it's you know instantaneous, uh, and and they can say anything they want. Often, not even with the real name. Um, is is there a is there a darker edge to to being a columnist these days in terms of public feedback? There there is. I know there is. I have not experienced that too much. I mean, I have my uh, trolls and you know the people who actually, but 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 in a way because. Uh, I'm not surprised by them. I know who they are in a certain sense, and I know what that what they're going to say. You know, it's one one of the things about being in a, a smaller smaller media community where uh, you know the the trolls that you get are generally speaking uh, the ones that you would expect, uh, and you can sort of ignore them uh, if you like. But I think that you know certainly for uh, people doing more personal kinds of things uh you know i think that, that there can be real dangers uh and 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 that's also something that's happened with social media is that people are writing more about themselves and that just invites you know uh negative response from people who have nothing better to do basically newspapers were still thriving when i attended journalism school some almost 25 years ago now uh but it was clear at the time that change was coming because of the, the advent of the internet and its rapid growth. I'm wondering how journalism schools, and, and I'm going to ask you because of your involvement at University of King's College, how have journalism schools responded to the evolving media landscape to make journalism training uh, relevant to, to what's happening on the, you know, in the real world, so to speak? I think it's been complicated, uh, you know, I think every journalism school in the country has faced uh, reductions in enrollment. Uh, you know, what people, so if you go back to that 20, 25 years, or maybe more like 15 or 20 years, and you, what you see is that, uh, you know, the internet was making news free. Uh, why should I pay for journalism when I can get it, you know, online for nothing? Uh, advertising collapsed, all of those things. Uh, and if you were a prospective student or the parent of a prospective student, you looked at that and you thought, this is not a really good profession for you to get into. Uh, you know, I, I, it certainly wasn't a good profession when I got into it either, but, um, you know, we were inspired by, you know, Watergate and all of those kinds of things. Uh, so, so, so it really made, made a, a reason to want to do this. Uh, I think as the internet evolved, what became clear, but it's, it's still sort of sorting itself out, is that people really do value news. They want news. They want information. Some people are now used to getting it for free, as, as they say. And that's the old advertising model in a certain sense, was that everything was free and, and, and uh, you got the benefit of the advertising. But that doesn't apply anymore. So advertising has gone down. In journalism schools, um, you know, one of the ways in which journalism schools responded uh, to the decline in interest in journalism was to try and make the argument, which is a very good argument, 
that the skills that you learn in journalism school are transferable to all sorts of other things. So, you know, you, you learn to uh, take unfamiliar situations, uh, research, uh, understand them, assimilate the information related to them, uh, can then simplify that, make it uh, you know, understandable to people. Um, you know, you can justify what you're doing with facts. All of those things, you know, work in any number of professions. And so it's a skill that's valuable. So, you know, I think we, journalism schools may have made the mistake of pitching that too much so that at, at a certain point, you're ending up with students who come to the journalism school who really don't want to be journalists. I mean, essentially, they want those skills and then take them off into PR or, you know, something else. Uh, and uh, I think that's undermined the core uh, elements of journalism. I, I, journalism education. I think I have to be careful here because um, I am semi-retired from the journalism school. I'm still I, re I retired from teaching in the actual undergraduate and graduate journalism schools at King's, and I'm co-founder of uh, the MFA in Creative Nonfiction, which is where I focus all my time now. So I don't okay. have anything to do on a day-to-day -day basis with with the journalism school, but you know I know that that they have suffered. Uh, uh, you know, from from declining enrollment, and I know uh, that part of that is that that the students who who are coming are not necessarily wanting to be journalists, and that confuses everything because you know the the part of what you learned in journalism school was to hold people to account. I mean, they're, they're sort of beyond the the skills of journalism. Uh, in research and writing was this compact of of uh, believing in truth and 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 asking uh, tough questions and and holding uh, power to account. That's harder to do if you don't have people who who see that as a goal, uh, mm -hmm. students who see that as a goal. So it is a pro it is a problem and a complication. Not something I'm as involved in these days. So uh, you know I, I'm I'm looking at it from a distance now. No, fair enough and. Part of the, the new media landscape that we're in is the, you know, the dominance of big tech companies like Google and, and Facebook. The Halifax Examiner recently announced it's getting funding from the Google News Initiative, and your editor, Tim Bousquet, will be getting business coaching as part of that arrangement. I'm wondering if you have any concerns about that agreement or with big tech's incursion into, you know, journalism sponsorships more generally. I don't in I don't in a specific sense with Tim because um, uh, Tim is not somebody who will uh, be pushed in a direction uh, lightly or easily. Uh, he will push back, and and I think what he sees, uh, you know, this is a his is a subscription based publication. Mm -hmm. uh, it it's a it, it operates very well. I mean, I, I'm speaking now as somebody who who writes for it. I don't have any ownership stake in it or anything else, but you know. What I see is I turn in my column uh, on a Sunday and it's published on a Monday and I build them on a Monday and I get paid on a Monday. Wow. Uh, but you know, which, which not my normal experience with uh, working as a journalist. So it, it's very nice that way. And, you know, I think I remember when uh, when I started with him, I, I, he said, um, you know, invoice me every week. And I said, well, you know, I'm not used to doing that. I would nor what I would normally do in a weekly column is once a month, I'll send you an invoice and you can pay me then. <clears throat> he said, I really want to know where I stand on a daily basis, you know, mm. so I, money going in, money coming in. And, and he's worked that way. And, and I, I think the part of the problem is that you reach a certain point in growth uh, and this last year, I mean, there's been tremendous growth, I think, in, in the examiner simply because of COVID and Porta Peak and other things where Northwood, where they've done a really good job. And uh, so they've gotten a lot more audience. But it's, I know from experience, I ran a magazine back in the 1987, 89. Our biggest issue uh, for advertising and for everything was the last issue we published because we ran out of money and, and capitalization, you know, which is a big deal in this, in that business. Uh, and so, you know, I think they, they, they need business management, uh, 
understanding, part of which will be for Tim, but I think, I think, and I, you know, I haven't talked to him about this, but I think it's also to hire somebody who will uh, handle the, the, um, the business side of things, which will allow him to do more reporting, which is his, his uh, uh, real skill, his, his journalism skills are why he has been successful, but it's not something, I mean, it also needs business skills. So just, just talking about him specifically, I would say, uh, and from what I understand about the Global News Initiative, I think it's fine. <clears throat> I think the larger question of uh, what's happened with big tech, Facebook and Google and others, uh, is that they're, they're eating our lunch as journalism ventures, right? They uh, take the advertising from that would have gone in the old days to newspapers and others uh, and taking them for themselves, not putting anything back in, and also taking our uh, work product, our stories and everything else and, and providing them to a larger audience, which is nice. I mean, it's nice to get a larger audience, but if nobody's paying for it, then it's not going to work. And so I think for me, what we need to do is tax these corporate tech giants and then find a way to put that money back into journalism. And there, there are a number of models that are out there, uh, most of which I have no interest in. I mean, I certainly don't see a use in uh, taking money from Facebook and putting it back into uh, legacy media uh, who don't have a, a, a model going forward. I think that, you know, what you need to do now is figure out how to how to cut the ties with advertising. Advertising is not going to work in the future for uh, legacy media. It's just simply it's not a, it's not a, an effective model. It's got to be subscription. It's got to be foundation. It's got to be some other way of funding these things. So I think that the big one, in many ways, would be to find ways to get tax money from these big companies back, not to media enterprises, particularly the big ones but to journalism. So uh, I, I know this is a model that's not necessarily particularly popular at the moment, but my idea is something of a Canada Council where, you know, in, in for, for literature and, and other things, creative arts, the way the Canada Council works is that you apply for a project, right? You have a project that you want to do and you apply for the project and there are certain parameters for all that stuff. And then you have peer ju juries that decide whether or not this is a worthwhile thing to, to fund. So it takes it out of, even though the Canada Council is government, it takes it out of government's hands and allows other people to make those decisions, which I think is also important because you don't want to have the government picking and choosing uh, among uh, journalism enterprises or journalists to, to say who should get money. But I think that would allow journalists to be funded to do projects that they could then sell uh, to, you know, whether it's Legacy Ventures or the Examiner or anywhere else, but in a way that that focuses on the journalism and not on the business. Yeah, that's that's a very interesting concept. I'm wondering, you mentioned, you know, government giving money directly, picking who gets money among media. That is actually happening, of course, mm -hmm. in a in a way. Um, you can open up the pages of the Chronicle Herald here in Halifax or, you know, anywhere else uh, across the country. And you, you see the credit being given to the, the federal media fund. Now, what are your thoughts on that? What do you, is there, what do you like about it? And, and what do you think that uh, maybe should be done differently? Well, I, I, I do like the idea that it's a recognition that journalism is is important and needs to to be funded, and that it's not uh, being adequately funded uh, under the old model of of advertising. Uh, you know that 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 is important. Then the question is, what do you do with all these companies that have uh, printing plants and fleets of trucks and uh, big infrastructure? Uh, that no longer makes sense. I mean, and, and and all you have to do is go back and think, you know, when I would start out in, in this business or even in, in the middle of, of my career, you know, classified advertising was a bedrock for newspapers. 
uh, Craigslist and Kijiji and all of just eight eight there and, and used uh, cars and and properties all got eaten up by by online uh, ventures that were in fact much better positioned uh because you could search them you could do all those things that you couldn't do on the the pages and the classifieds and then you know with facebook and twitter uh and and other things it was much more possible for advertisers to target uh audiences both locally and 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 nationally and internationally so that they could they could reach in and and try to pitch their ad to somebody who was 25 to 30 who lived in an urban uh, area, which you can't do with a newspaper. You can't do with a print on paper publication. So <clears throat> over time, you know, I think uh, it's clear that that's not going to work. So what's the new model? Well, the new model that's coming from, from the, the people who really lobbied for this fund uh, was, hey, help us out. We're the old model. We need help. Uh, and it did cut out a lot of of startups and a lot of smaller ventures where the 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 entrepreneurship and the innovation is really happening and those are the ones that i think need to be funded and i th so i think that this was a is a program that really is designed by the people who are failing and and i, I i'm not trying to put them down i think that they're failing because it's the times and it's you know if you can't get rid of your printing press and you can't get rid of your fleet of trucks uh, and your contracts and all of those sorts of things, you're stuck with them. And, and okay, businesses fail. I mean, that's the nature of the world, right? But if, if we prop them up, if we make the Chronicle Herald and other publications limp along a little better than they were limping along before because we give them money, uh, that blocks the entrance of other more nimble, smarter, perhaps more editorially interesting ventures. Uh, and that, so, so I think that I, I, I recognize the, the, the need for uh, public help of some sort or another. It's just that I don't think that, that it's, it's going in the right way. And I think if, you know, I, I look at something like the coast here in, in mm -hmm. Atlanta, Canada, or here in Halifax, uh, you know, they're a company that uh, was built on the old advertising model because, uh, you know, it was, they, and they had captured that market, the, the arts and entertainment culture uh, marketplace in Halifax. They had a lot of people who were, uh, you know, advertisers who were willing to pay to reach the, their audience, which is the idea. And then that's been uh, sort of been eaten away at over the last number of years anyway. And then the pandemic came along and, and wreaked havoc on that. But now they're trying to come back with a different model, which is really subscriber and donation based. And, you know, they've just recently released uh, uh, an investigative report by Stephanie Nolan, the former Globe and Mail reporter on Northwood uh, and what happened there. And it's a devastating indictment of what happened but it's also an explanation of what happened in, you know, in human terms. Um, and those are the kind of publications that you don't want to disappear in the way that you might want, or you might not be as uh, upset to see some of the long-term legacy publications that haven't been able to, to pivot and find their way in this new world. Shifting gears now, Stephen, in your writing and in your activism, you've demonstrated a deep and abiding interest in Cuba. Uh, you've been a harsh critic of the punishing U.S. blockade of the island, and you helped set the record straight in, in a book and in, in, in articles uh, about the Cuban Five. Wondering where does your passion for Cuba come from? It was totally accidental. Uh, I mean, in the sense I had been, I was one of those Canadians who, you know, like to go to Cuba and sit on the beach and drink mojitos and have a good time. Um, and I had, you know, all of the books I'd written to that point were books uh, basically set in Nova Scotia about either history or, or current events. Uh, and we were, my wife and I were at a resort in Cuba and we were enjoying those mojitos on the beach and just talking about, I was talking about, you know, thinking about a next project and she said 
you shouldn't always uh, limit yourself to, to writing about Nova Scotia. And I thought that made some sense. And then so I, I came up with this idea uh, for a novel set in Cuba and in Nova Scotia. So that was my sort of uh, compromise with my wife was that it would be partly set in Nova Scotia and partly set in Cuba. And it was going to be a love story, a romance. Um, and I went to Cuba to do research for it in 2009. And as I was, uh, when I was there, I hired a guide, sort of an off-market guide who could take me around to the Havana I would not see as a tourist. And the idea was this, this is what I needed to know to, in order to write a novel about that, that would include uh, sections on Havana. <laughs> it went very well. And then we ended up at the Hotel Nacional, uh, sitting on the balcony outside, smoking cigars, drinking mojitos, and admiring the Bay of Havana. Uh, and this was just after Barack Obama had been uh, elected president of the United States. And I said, you know, is is this going to change things for Cuba and the United States? And he just looked at me and said, nothing will change until they solve the problem of the five. I had no idea what he was talking about. But I went when I went back, I started to Google and tried to figure out you know, what this was all about. And, and eventually uh, I got the transcript of their trial. And that was a 20,000 page transcript of the, their trial from 1999-2000. And as I read it, I realized more and more that this was, at first I thought this would be a great, it's a spy story, I can figure out how to you know, tell a spy story, whether it's fiction or fact. But the more I learned about it, the more I realized that this was a travesty of justice, which is what it was. It was not just, it, 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 and it spoke to a lot of things about the relationship between Cuba and the United States. So I became uh, interested in it, and I didn't have a publisher for a long time. Uh, I, you know, I was nobody was really interested in in the book. Uh, my agent tried to pitch it to Americans, to Canadians, uh, but I, you know, I, I was so obsessed with it, I just kept going, which is not the, the economically the smart thing to do. <laughs> uh, but I, you know, I, I couldn't help myself. I wanted to tell this story. And finally, uh, Fernwood, the, the regional publisher here, which does a lot of academic publishing, a lot of political publishing, uh, Errol uh, said, you know, he was really interested. So uh, they published it. It, it. it was fascinating to do because I, first of all, because I learned so much about uh, Cuba, Cuba-US relationships, Cuba and Canada. And then um, after it was published, it was interesting because there were people in the United States who were trying not so much to free the Cuban five, but to free an American that the Cubans had arrested uh, because they, everybody recognized that, that, that it was going to be some sort of swap, which was going to be the, the end of the day. And uh, people, including uh, Alan Gross was the, the, the American's name. Alan Gross's lawyer um, read my book and uh, thought it was fair. I mean, he was a, he's a, he is an interesting character in and of himself, but he began to circulate it to people he knew uh, in the State Department, in the Justice Department in the United States, basically saying, you really need to take another look at this case. So some people did read it. Uh, and although, I mean, they, they obviously weren't going to take a Canadian journalist version of uh, this story as gospel, but it encouraged some of them to go back and, in fact, look at the case again. Look at the same transcript I looked at and appeals and other things. And people began to realize, hey, this is a, a miscarriage of justice here. And we have to do something about it. You know, nobody is ever going to say that it was a miscarriage of justice, but it became built into something else that happened at the same time, which was Obama's decision uh, in 2012 uh, to realize, you know, he's not going to get any published in Congress, so he's got to do things on his own. So one of the things on his own that he can do uh, was change the, the dynamics with Cuba, which was overdue. Uh, and so the, the release of the, the last of the Cuban five became part of the rapprochement with, with Havana, in, you know, which Donald Trump uh, uh, did in, but but in the short term, uh, it changed the, the 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 face of Cuba. Anyway, so that was that that's a, a rather long explanation of how I got interested in it. But I, I will tell you that um, now the the book was published in 2013. I started this in 2009, going down to do the novel. 
Uh, and this past year, I finally published the novel that was that was at the at the heart of this in the first place, called Sweetness in the Lime. So it has come out, and now I have my uh, Cuba uh, period partly out of out of me. Well, there you go. <laughs> Uh, on the topic of, you know, American presidents, you've got a new president with uh, Joe Biden. I'm not personally uh, thinking he's going to, to do a whole heck of a lot, but do you expect he might at least roll things back to where they were under Obama vis-a-vis -vis Cuba? I would say that that would be the inclination. I think that uh, as is true generally in the United States, uh, Cuba is not really important to most of the big decisions that they made. They're, you know, they're going to be talking about Iran and Afghanistan and all those other things, less about Cuba. Uh, the problem with Cuba is that you still have this uh, incredibly powerful lobby of old Cuban Americans who just won't die off, I think is really what it comes down to, uh, who have, you know, had undue influence. And of course, you know, that's, that ties into the fact that Florida is, uh, you know, a swing state in, in presidential elections. And uh, it's not so much that the Cuban American vote is as, is as important as, you know, every vote is important there. And so you don't want to lose any. So I think, uh, I, I think that, that they will try to move things back uh, as much as they can to where Obama was. I don't think they will be more progressive than that. They certainly will not push uh, in uh, the current term or, or if they get a second term to get rid of the blockade. I mean, that's, uh, which is the, really essential thing that has to happen in order to allow Cuba to be Cuba, right? Um, they've done some amazing things in spite of, and sometimes because of the blockade. I mean, they created this uh, very successful pharmaceutical industry uh, because of, of the, the lack of supplies that they could get in, in other ways. And, you know, what, one of the things that um, I, you know, I do have concerns about individual rights in Cuba, you know, rights to protest, those sorts of things. I, I'm certainly not suggesting that, that Cuba is a perfect place, but I also think it's really interesting their definition of human rights, uh, which mm -hmm. is, you know, universal health care, universal education. And you start to learn about some of the things that they've done over the years. And I think in, in, in one particular thing that, I, you know, from the beginning, they've been very involved in, in medical internationalism is what they call it, which is sending doctors to places where they're needed. And in 1998, 1999, there were hurricanes in Central America, and they sent the, the usual brigade of Cuban doctors to help out. <clears throat> and they reported back that some of the people that they met with or they, that they, they treated in these places had never seen a doctor in their lives. And Castro uh, decided at that point that, that uh, what they really needed to do was train doctors to go there, train the doctors from there to go back there. And they now have uh, the uh, Latin American University of Medi Medicine, whatever it's called, ELAM is how it's known in, in most places, but it's the largest medical school in the world and they train people for free. Uh, and the only requirement is that they go back uh, to their uh, homelands and, and treat people in underserviced areas. I mean, you, th you know, yes, there are problems in Cuba, uh, but at the same time, there are some pretty amazing things that have happened there that don't get, that they don't get credit for. Oh, absolutely. And, and that medical internationalism has been on full display during the pandemic, whether it's been uh, accepting cruise line passengers, I think they were British primarily, yep. and uh, sending out medical teams to a whole host of countries to help with their COVID yep. response. So it's, it continues. It's, it's really uh, an amazing story with Cuba. Now let's shift to the, the new book, Alexa, Changing the Face mm -hmm. of Politics. And uh, Goose Lane was kind enough to send me a review copy. And what I've read so far is excellent. So this is an authorized biography of former Nova Scotia and Canadian NDP leader Alexa McDonough. And you mentioned being approached or commissioned to write the book. Can you explain how you became involved? And uh, for, for listeners who aren't aware, what's the difference between an authorized and an unauthorized biography? 
Well, I think, I mean, the unauthorized biography is me by myself deciding to do this and somebody cooperates or they don't. I mean, you know, the, the, it, it's that. In this case, um, there had been a number of attempts before to uh, document her life and there were some recordings that were done that were supposed to be part of something larger and it didn't really happen. So um, the family members, that's her two sons and her brother, invited me to a meeting uh, with some of the people who were involved in some of those earlier projects and said, would you be interested in doing this? And uh, I mean, I thought that uh, two things. I thought, first of all, the story had probably already been told. There wasn't much to say, but I discovered that wasn't really true. There was a lot uh, that hadn't been uh, covered or, or thought about before. But, you know, I, I clearly wanted to make sure what kind of book they wanted. Uh, did they want a sort of a fawning, uh, you know, uh, story about her? Uh, did they want a real story? And I had worked on on a previous book with uh, her brother, uh, Robbie Shaw, who was also involved in this. And I had a really good relationship. You know, the, the, this was a book about the IWK hospital, the history of it. And, you know, there were scandals there uh, and and things that, a lot of people would not have wanted to have uh, published and they you know he and the the foundation were just fine with that and they basically said the same thing here uh so i felt uh basically i could write the book that i wanted they mm -hmm. had the final say if there was something that they did not want published uh, then obviously it wouldn't be published. I could make a decision at that point that I didn't want my name on the book. That would be the sort of my only uh, trade-off in that. Never came to that at all. I mean, basically, uh, you know, I, I have to write about, the, about her divorce, uh, other lovers that she had, uh, a family history that goes back that has, you know, uh, uh, violence. I mean, not not at her generation, but the you know the her grandparents' generation uh, was particular. I mean, there were some nasty things that happened there, and of course, you know, uh, you know, as a leader, she she you know she was a driven woman as well as everything else. But she was also, uh, and this is one of the things I found interesting when I was researching it. When when I started out, I remember I did have about twenty hours of interviews that I did uh, with Alexa, and. You know, I remember asking very early on, I said, you know, do you have any letters or documents that I can get hold of to just sort of, you know, put things together? And she said, no, I, you know, as I move from place to place, I think I just got rid of things as I went along. Uh, so she told me stories, but I didn't have the, that sort of documentation. And then uh, when she was, she was, she moved out of her condo and into assisted living uh, while I was writing the book. And I got a call from uh, her son and he said, you know, there's a whole bunch of boxes here that you might be interested in. Uh, and I looked and there were probably a, a dozen or more of those bankers boxes full of stuff, right? And not very well organized, but lots of stuff, letters, some of which went back to her uh, days as a young woman and, 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 and some that she had from her parents' relationship when they were uh, getting together. So these were fascinating documents. And one of, one of the things that I remember, you know, being really shocked at at the time when I first saw it was uh, uh, there was correspondence between her and her uh, first husband or her only husband, but, but uh, Peter McDonough, and they, they eventually divorced. But uh, this was when Alexa was at uh, Smith College in the U.S., and uh, they were trying to, you know, they were they're going forth about their love for each other and all that sort of stuff. And Alexa wrote because it was an issue that had come up. Uh, if I ever have to choose between having a career for myself and being Mrs. Peter McDonough, I will always choose to be Mrs. Peter McDonough. I mean, at first I thought, wow, you know, this is incredible. And then I thought back and I thought, no, it's not. It's actually, she's very much a product of her times. I mean, mm -hmm. and, and that, that what, what was really interesting to me is what happened between that, which would have been the early 60s, and when she became a politician uh, for real in 1979, Betty Friedan, 
the women's movement, uh, a whole bunch of things happened that made her really a product of those times. And, and I don't know that I would have understood where she came from and how far she traveled in a certain sense if I didn't have those letters. Uh, so I was grateful for those letters uh, and documents that that uh, I was able to get access to uh, at the time when I was writing it. And, uh, you know, again, uh, the family never said to me, well, you know, check these out with us first and and uh, we'll see if they're OK uh, for you to use. Because there was you know, there's a lot of quite personal stuff in there, um, but they never said that. So it's 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 authorized. Uh, but then I was left alone, I think is, is, uh, what I would say. The, the big difference from a writer's point of view is I got paid for it, <laughs> <laughs> you know? So <clears throat> it was, I had a contract to write the book, uh, with the, the family or with, with Bruce Lane. Uh, I have a contract. It's, it's complicated. It's or contract, both perhaps. Well, I guess it's with both. Hmm. Um, the way the contract works with goose lane if i'm not mistaken is that the royalties go to the family from the book so you know i've been paid they will get hopefully some of the investment that they put into the book back because of 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 this uh but uh so i i mean essentially i had two contracts and and what we did was uh I ran the manuscript by the family uh, before I submitted it to Goose Lane so that there was never going to be a fight over anything, right? Mm -hmm. and, and in fact, there, there, there was no fight at all because the family approved the, the manuscript as I wrote it. But if they had objected, that would have been the place to object. And then it would go to Goose Lane and then we would go through the editing process, which we did. So, you know, the... Uh, things get changed and shortened and and more stuff needed here i also i should say i had a a, a great editor a freelance editor uh from goose lane uh susan renouf who is uh, used to be i think uh mcclellan stewart and and uh, uh then uh house of nancy she's she or ecw i can't remember but she is a a, a very experienced editor and somebody who comes from Nova Scotia, so she also had a good Nova Scotia background. And it turned out uh, that we are related in a Nova Scotia <laughs> way. <laughs> One of those Nova Scotia things where we actually um, are connected in, in, in that way. So that was interesting in a Nova Scotia way to experience. But she was a very good editor, very knowledgeable about politics and, and, and very helpful in, in the writing of the book. A good editor is worth his or her weight in gold. Absolutely. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, now, one thing you mentioned, I believe in the foreword, is that I think it was around 1980, you worked for a little while as a speechwriter for Alexis McDonough. And I'm just wondering, when you knew her then, did you have any sense that she would go on to such a high profile political career? <laughs> no. No, I, sh I shouldn't. I mean, you know, a couple of things. She was, she was really smart. Uh, I mean, you could see that just talking with her. Uh, and she was driven. I mean, you could see that as well. Uh, I never thought beyond that. And of course, you know, when, she, when, when I did the speech writing, this was a freelance contract. So I was doing other things at the same time. Um, and she and her, her chief aide uh, would come to my house uh, in the afternoons after legislature sittings or whatever, and come down into the, we had a, a hole in the basement, uh, you know, one of those pullback doors, barn doors or whatever you call them that would get you into the basement. And it leaked most of the time. And they would arrive, you know, well-dressed uh, from, from downtown, uh, come in, sit there. And we would talk about what she wanted me to write for the next day, whether it was for the legislature or a press release or whatever. Uh, and then they would go away and I would do that. So, you know, I didn't have a, a, a huge amount to do with it. I was impressed by her, but I was not expecting anything uh, beyond that. And, 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 you know, I grew up in Nova Scotia. The NDP was sort of, uh, at the bottom of the barrel when it came to elective politics, it always had been. And somehow, even at that point, it always seemed like it would be. And, and, you know, when I also, so 
I guess before that, uh, I covered her when she did when she ran federally in 1979 and 1980, and I covered her in 1980 for. Uh, a magazine, another lamented, late lamented magazine called Today. Uh, and they wanted to do what amounted to a kind of a joke thing about uh, candidates who had no chance. And so they picked her and a number of others across the country. And it was kind of a, a tribute to them, but also a put down that there was, there was no hope for these people. Why did they bother to do this stuff? And, you know, I had the, you know, so I followed her around a little bit, had a conversation with her, and I remember her saying, uh, you know, that she expected, she, she knew she wouldn't win, but she expected to get around 25% of the vote, and she thought that would be pretty good. So she ended up with 20% of the vote. And so on election night, I sort of went up to her and said, well, you know, you didn't do so well. And she said, it's going to be a long struggle here, but we are getting, you know, we're getting, and she was always uh, intensely optimistic about everything. And I don't think either one of us realized that the first time that the, or well, we certainly didn't realize the first time that an NDP candidate would win that Halifax federal riding would be, I think it was 17 years later. And it was in fact, Alexa McDonough who won it. So, you know, it's a, an interesting uh, jump from one to the other time. And of course, there was a, you know, after Alexa McDonough retired from politics, there was a, another NDP candidate who, who captured the riding, I believe twice, Megan Leslie. Mm -hmm. yes, uh, yep. and, and the current caucus of the NDP provincially is uh, four women and one man. So the, 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 the legacy of, of Alexa McDonough trailblazing for women in Nova Scotia politics seems to continue. Oh, I think it does. And I think, you know, uh, uh, back in the, the 80s, when she was still uh, provincial leader is, is when uh, the party started something called the Women in the Legislature Fund, which was to help women with the kind of financial uh, expenses that they would need to get that to enable them to run. Uh, and if I'm not mistaken, there that, that fund still exists. Uh, and some of the women, certainly who are in the legislature now, are there in part because of the financial support that they got there. Her role as a woman was interesting because it wasn't just um, she was she was a feminist who proved her feminism by doing things, by pushing forward, by, you know, not letting people uh, get her down. Uh, she wasn't somebody who, I, I guess you'd say, so, sort of, there was no woe is me in, mm -hmm. in her. Uh, and, you know, I, going back to, to, you know, doing that freelance speech writing, I had no idea just how vicious the Nova Scotia legislature, the other members of the Nova Scotia legislature had been to her. I mean, it is in the book. It's, it, it was uh, horrific, uh, the way that they treated her. Uh, we knew about the fact that there was no women's washroom. That was sort of the, the, the standard line about, you know, what, what was wrong. But there were so many other things uh, that were done to undermine her in the legislature. Um, she had to... to to prove herself every day uh, and to refuse to, to let anybody block her or, or, or stop her. And, and that, you know, I think opened the doors for other women because she had pushed through. Mm -hmm. um, it was by her persistence, by her uh, willingness to go that extra step. And, and, you know, that applied in the federal uh, political arena as well. I mean, she didn't have, a particularly supportive caucus uh, when she won the leadership, partly because uh, none of them supported her uh, in the leadership campaign, but also just because it was also kind of a, a Western old boys network, right? And and so uh, she had to find ways uh, to get past that, and she did. And and, and I mean, one of the, I mean, I, to me, it, it's also a very interesting part of Alexa's career is she transcended party and to a certain extent gender and became Alexa to so many people in the country uh, who might not have supported her as leader or certainly didn't support the NDP, uh, but had a great deal of respect for her. And she was able to, to translate that when she finally stopped being the leader of the party 
into a, a kind of elder stateswoman uh, position, senior stateswoman uh, in the party during the time of Jack Layton, uh, you know, her work on things that that were not Nova Scotian, uh, uh, Afghanistan, Iraq, uh, uh, the Mararar uh, issue. Uh, you know, when you when you read Arar's wife's account of how she helped the family at a time when this was a you know there was there wasn't much sympathy in in politics uh, for a Muslim uh, who had been illegally detained by the Americans and and renditioned off you know that was simply not uh, something that 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 would have gotten any attention uh in many ways if it wasn't for alexa and for the ndp you know but alexa in particular pushing that and then finally when when after she left politics i think she found her rightful place when she went to mount st vincent university as the interim president because she was finally freed of oh she's a nice woman but she's an ndp or you know the the anti-NDP sentiment and people were able to see her uh, for who she was and she was able to again accomplish a lot I mean I talked to a, a bunch of people at Mount St. Vincent who you know uh, saw her as as you know a great president even if she was only president for a short time there. Well as I said Stephen I'm, I'm only uh just started the book, but what I've read so far is excellent. And I know there's going to be an online book launch on Thursday, April 22nd. Where can people register for that? And what, what's the format going to be for the event? It, it's, it's going to be a, a kind of a, it's, it's virtual, obviously. So mm. in these, uh, in these days, uh, there will be some greetings from, uh, political leaders, uh, I think uh, a number of women who, who uh, Catherine Wynne, the, the former premier of Ontario, or Kathleen Wynne, um, uh, Megan Leslie, uh, a number of others. Uh, I'll talk about the book and do some readings and uh, there will be an opportunity for Q and A's. The best way to get registered for it and it's free and it's open to anybody one of the the disadvantages we can't be live in person the advantage is because we are virtual we can uh attract people from all over the place not just uh, nova scotia so it, it's mm -hmm. good in that way but there will be a, a an opportunity for question and answers i think if you go to there's there's the alexa mcdonough institute at mount st vincent university or the Goose Lane website, I'm sure that both of those will have links to, uh, because they're co-sponsoring it, will have links to, to sign up for it. Okay, and, and you have a very comprehensive website, stephenkimber.com, where people can learn more about you and your work. Is there anywhere else you'd like people to connect with you online? Uh, that would be great. Uh, I mean, I'm on Twitter, at uh, skimber, and... Uh, uh, I think that's probably that's probably it. But uh, uh, I would be happy to to be in touch with people who aren't trolls. But <laughs> if we <laughs> go back you. to the earlier conversation. Yeah, for sure. So it's been a real pleasure speaking with you, Stephen. Thanks for coming on the podcast, and all the best with the book launch. Thank you very much, and 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 good luck with the podcast. I, you know, I looked at the your list of uh, guests, and I'm honored to be part of it. And and I think it sounds like a great uh, a great venture. So good luck. That wraps up this episode of the Trailblazers and Troublemakers podcast. Thanks very much for listening in. If you have any feedback for us, you can send an email to trailtroublepod at gmail.com. And please follow us on Twitter at Trail Trouble Pod. Hope you'll join us next time. Bye for now.